Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're looking at some climate impacts that aren't always top of mind. And stick around after the interview. Katie Love is back with This Week in Science History. Right around the time we were planning this episode, Tropical Storm Nicholas was lingering around the Gulf Coast, dumping inches of rain on a region that doesn't really need it, just over two weeks after Hurricane Ida caused widespread flooding and power outages. When I think about storms like Nicholas and Ida, my first thought is for the threats to people's immediate physical safety, like drowning, electrocution, being hit by debris, or the medical emergencies that can happen when power goes out. But there's another threat that I don't consider often enough, and that's the threat to people's health from damages to industrial facilities in their neighborhoods. Chemical plants, refineries, waste management plants, they can incur damages from the increasingly deadly effects of climate change, including floods, sea level rise, and wildfires. And this means everyone around them is at risk of being exposed to the dangerous chemicals stored within these facilities, whether it's in the air they breathe, the water they might wade through to escape floods, or the water they drink. It turns out I'm not the only one who doesn't think enough about these risks. The Environmental Protection Agency requires chemical facilities to create what are known as risk management plans, or RMPs. And these RMPs are supposed to protect the communities around them from exposure to toxic chemicals in a crisis. But many RMPs fall short much of the time, and neither local governments nor our federal government are doing enough to make sure they're enforced. It's a good thing my colleague Casey Kalman is thinking about this problem. Casey is a researcher with our Center for Science and Democracy, and she joined me to discuss her new analysis of the potential risks to these facilities and the marginalized communities they're often located in. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You recently worked on a project that looked at the potential risk from natural disasters, which we know are becoming more severe with climate change, to thousands of industrial facilities that store hazardous, potentially lethal chemicals. What types of facilities did your analysis look at, and how did you determine which ones are vulnerable to natural disasters? Yes. So our analysis looked specifically at facilities that are regulated under a very specific rule that is part of the Clean Air Act. So to give some background, it is part of the risk management plan rule, which is basically this rule that is put in place to make sure that facilities that are housing hazardous chemicals are doing everything they can to make sure that those facilities are not being released or leaked and having an effect on the people who both work at the facility and those who live in the surrounding communities. So we looked specifically at those facilities. What types of facilities would those be? The facilities that are regulated under this rule, it's really a wide swath of different types of industries. Some of them are petrochemical facilities or oil refineries, while there are others that could be, for example, a brewery or a refrigeration facility that might be preparing food to go out to grocery stores and things of that nature. So making sure that they're they're frozen and then that there are the refrigerant chemicals that are, are part of that process. So it's really 
a, a wide variety of facilities. And the number of facilities that are regulated under this particular rule is about 12,000. So you mentioned that there are roughly 12,000 plus facilities in the United States. How many of those facilities are threatened by natural disasters? So from our analysis, we, we looked at specifically facilities that are at risk of climate-related natural disasters. So we limited it to the types of natural disasters where we felt we could not only draw a pretty clear link between climate change and the natural disaster, but also where there was data available that um, would allow us to kind of identify which regions were at risk. So we looked specifically at wildfires, inland flooding, coastal flooding, and storm surge due to hurricanes. And we found from this analysis that there are just under 4,000, so about 3,800 facilities that are in areas at risk of, of one of those natural disasters, some of which are at risk of more than one of those natural disasters. So what data did you look at? So for wildfires specifically, we looked at the historic wildfire perimeters. So we identified areas that have previously seen wildfires. In addition to using a data set by the U.S. Forest Service that actually identifies area of the country that has a high burn potential. So it's not only areas that have had previous fires, but there's the potential there for fires in the future. For the coastal flooding, we looked actually at a data set from a previous UCS report where we looked at the potential for coastal flooding as a result of sea level rise. So that was actually looking into the future, into the year 2040. So in that way, we, we were also trying to account for the fact that sea level rise will cause a, a greater probability of coastal flooding along the east and Gulf Coast. And then we also used data from FEMA to look at 100 and 500 year flood zones, as well as data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, to look at the probability of storm surge along the east and Gulf Coast due to a, a Category 4 storm was the data that we used. So in many ways, the data that we used for certain layers is actually, it's giving us a very um, conservative estimate of the number of facilities at risk because we're not always, we didn't always look at the worst case scenario. This is actually a somewhat conservative estimate. So our risk management program facilities are those Superfund sites or is that different? So that kind of gets into the fact that there are a large number of chemical facilities or just hazardous sites throughout the U.S., but they're all, a lot of them are actually regulated under different rules. So Superfund sites are separate from risk management program sites. Yeah, they are not operate, they're not regulated under okay. the same, the same rules. And Superfund sites are areas of land that are contaminated. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So Superfund sites are contaminated areas. It can be an area where a bunch of chemicals were dumped and then buried. Sometimes it can be there's an entire river, I believe, in the Midwest that is labeled a, a Superfund site. But basically, they have been contaminated usually by industry in the past and now have been designated a Superfund site because they are in need of funds from the Superfund, which the government has set up to then clean up that site. So 
the cleanup of those sites often takes decades and the process can be quite complex to, to get the level of contaminants down to a level that's no longer harmful or potentially hazardous. So those are an, that's another category of, of sites that could potentially be at risk. And I do think it is important to talk about the fact that this analysis only looked at the risk management plan sites because there are facilities that are not currently regulated under RMP that have been hit by extreme weather events and have caused the release of toxic chemicals. So for example, just last year, as a result of Hurricane Laura, there was a facility called the Biolab Chlorine Facility in Westlake, Louisiana. It was hit by the hurricane, and as a result of the damage, it released chlorine gas into the surrounding community. Now, it was said that most of this gas settled pretty close to the facility, but there have been some accounts in some Local news reports that say that people who were waiting to get back into their homes after being evacuated, they felt nauseous or they were having trouble breathing. And that's a facility that's not regulated under RMP. But at the same time, it does have the potential to, I mean, as we've seen, it has released toxic chemicals into the surrounding community. And that facility is, they're planning on rebuilding it in the exact same spot. And if they don't take the necessary steps, it's likely that something like this could happen again. So Casey, have we already seen, quote, double disasters, which I know is the name of your analysis. Have you seen examples of this already in the U.S.? Yes. So unfortunately, there are close to 100 of these events that happen every year, and they can really vary on what causes them. For example, following Hurricane Harvey, as we know, that storm led to an unprecedented amount of flooding in the Houston area as the hurricane just kind of sat over Texas and just dumped tons of tons of water and rain. But as a result of that event, there were multiple NATEC events or national hazard triggered technological events, which is what we call these chemical events that occur as a result of hurricanes or flooding or whatever whatever natural hazard may have caused the the incident. So as a result of all that flooding, there was a facility called the the Arkema Crosby plant just outside Houston. It's about, I think, 50, over 50 miles inland. So it's not even necessarily super close to the coast. But because of the unprecedented flooding, that facility, their refrigeration systems, which were keeping the organic peroxides that were being held at that facility stable, actually broke down and shut down. And even though that facility had a risk management plan in place, they were not prepared for the crazy amount of water that ended up flooding the facility. So as a result of that, there were several burn events because these chemicals, if not held at the proper temperature, can more or less spontaneously combust. So there were fires that happened as a result. And I believe the facility experienced fires for the four days following the breakdown of those systems. And unfortunately, that wasn't the only event that happened following Hurricane Harvey. There were numerous spills of hazardous water. I'm talking about untreated wastewater from different facilities that was released, as well as gasoline that was released or spilled in nearby areas. So just from that one event, the way way that facilities were not in any way prepared for the amount of flooding that occurred led to multiple different incidents and an an amount of exposure and potential harm to the people living in that area that I don't think we'll really understand for a long time. Well, it's interesting because as you were talking about this, I was wondering about the people on the ground in those communities. Who's most at risk when these things happen? Yeah. So there have been various demographic analyses looking at the, the populations that live around these risk management 
plan facilities. And it is often communities of color and low-income communities that are living immediately around these facilities. So they are often the most affected by these incidents when they do occur, which makes this not only an issue of environmental health, but of environmental justice and that these communities are being disproportionately impacted. And I, I often feel like when people hear about someone who may be living near a petrochemical facility or something, they often think, well, why, why do those people live there? Why don't they just move? But because of all the industry in these areas and the industry that often has built up over time, the property value has become so low because of the industry presence that oftentimes, even if someone were to sell their home, they would not be able to afford a place someplace else where they would not be where they would not experience similar exposures. So at the end of the day, this is really something where the the solution is not for people to move. (laughs) The solution is for industry to take responsibility and start putting plans in place to make sure that they're protecting not only their the, their workers and the people who work at their facilities, but also those who live in the surrounding communities. You can't say that all of these communities didn't exist before the industry arrived there. Sometimes the 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 community will be built up because um, they actually work at the facilities that are nearby. So you might be asking someone to move away from the job opportunities that are available there, or there are plenty of um, communities where. There is a, a strong history of that community living there. Um, and then all of a sudden industry came in then um, now they found themselves in their historic home that has been overrun by industry um, that's basically pushing them out, but also poisoning them in the meantime. Were there any other examples? There was an incident in Michigan, not that long ago, I believe it was last year, where there was an once again, an unprecedented level of of rain and flooding that occurred. And when coupled with the fact that there was some aging infrastructure and some dams that had not been well kept, several dams were breached, leading to a great amount of flooding. So it's, it's something that's not just a coastal problem. For a transcript, a full bio of our guest, and more resources, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you're enjoying the podcast, here are a couple of ways you can help us out. First, you can subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Another way to help is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us, check us out on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So the risk management program facilities, or RMPs, as we're referring to them, they're currently in place, but it sounds as if they're either not working or they're not robust enough. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the current situation and then how we improve things. Yeah. So currently... RMP facilities are required to do an assessment of the risk posed by the facility to workers and the surrounding community. And then they are required to come up with a plan to not only mitigate those risks, but also a plan for what they would do if an incident were to occur. However, in many ways, it has been shown time and time again that the the plans that are currently in place are not adequate, especially when it comes to issues of climate change, 
climate change is in no way required to be considered in the risk assessment for these facilities. And when it comes to facilities that are located on the coasts or near rivers or in areas that are affected by wildfires, it just, it's not really acceptable or adequate to not consider climate change, especially given that we have the science to help us prepare for what we know is coming and what we know has already happened. And so in that way, the current regulation falls short and continues to put us at risk. So what are the most critical actions that need to be taken to protect these facilities and and the people who live near them? So there are a number of things that need to be done in order to make sure that these facilities don't continue to pose a serious risk to workers or fence line communities. The biggest thing in many ways being the integration of climate change considerations into risk assessment and risk management plans. As we've seen time and time again, these facilities are being hit by by extreme flooding and storms. And I don't think we can we can say for much longer that we weren't expecting it. We, we know that these things are happening and we need to be prepared. So I think that is top of mind, at least for me. But in addition to that, there are a number of things that can be done, some of which are pretty straightforward. So for example, information, just making sure that the people who are working at the facility, first responders and those living around the facility actually know what they're being exposed to. So making sure that they have information about the chemicals at these facilities, but also what they should be concerned about if there were a potential release, especially with first responders. The GAO put out a statement at one point saying that first responders are not given adequate information about the chemicals at these facilities. And they're they're the ones at the front line, on the front lines, when, when these incidents occur. Furthermore, also making sure that communities are notified when incidents happen. So making sure that there's some kind of notification system in multiple languages so that everyone can understand what occurred and the risk that that they might be incurring. And that should be in language that not only is in multiple languages, but also in simple layman's terms so that everyone can understand and act appropriately. Fence line monitoring is another one of our recommendations. So when we talk about the fence line, we are talking about the area immediately surrounding these facilities. And currently there's no regulation to make sure that there are air monitors around the facilities measuring for whatever potential chemicals the facility could be releasing. This not only means that we don't have regular data on the potential exposure for people living around these facilities, but also if there were some kind of incident, something like fence line monitoring would be the best way for us to very quickly understand what is being released and the potential exposure to those nearby so that decisions around evacuations could be made could be made quickly and so that there could be a proper response basically and then the the one other thing that I want to highlight is just the expansion of the RMP coverage as i've stated there are facilities there are hundreds of thousands of facilities throughout the US many of which contain hazardous chemicals but not all of them are required to put these plans in place to make sure that they're not going to have these unintentional releases during extreme storms or other types of events. So places like the Biolab facility in Westlake, Louisiana should be required to have this kind of plan to make sure that they're not they're not going to harm their workers or those in the, the surrounding communities. How open are these facilities about the chemicals that they're using? And are they required to disclose that information? So they are required to disclose that information, but the the level to which most people can find that information, that's where things start getting a little fuzzy. 
EPA has a website called the ECHO Facility Search. It's E-C-H-O, Facility Search. And you can go and type in a zip code or a facility name and then click on a certain facility to get more information. And you can see year by year exactly what types of chemicals and how much of each chemical they are emitting each year. However, unfortunately, there is some evidence to show that this information is often outdated and in that way, not necessarily super reliable, but also in many ways you would need to have the background on what those chemicals are and the the harm that they could potentially cause you or how they could interact with each other. Right. I was thinking you you probably need a degree in chemistry to understand how harmful it is. Yeah, it would take a, a good amount of effort to actually go onto the EPA websites and start to get an understanding of what is what are at these facilities and the risk that they pose to to you. So that's why we think it's really important to make sure that there are resources available and information is given directly to communities in multiple languages in in terms that most people are going to understand and that you don't need some kind of advanced degree or skill set to be able to find this information because if you're if you're living next to the facility you should know what your risks are how do we make these changes happen is there a role for the individual uh, well, in the past, EPA has held several listening sessions for community members and community organizations to voice their concerns and recommendations for how the RMP program could be improved. So a listening session often or usually occurs when a federal agency posts a, a proposed regulation of some kind. And then there's time for community organizations and stakeholders to voice concerns or support for whatever is in that legislation. These listening sessions that have already occurred were done prior to any legislation being posted. However, hopefully the EPA will be posting a revised version of the RMP rules in the future. And following that, the public will have the opportunity to to respond and voice their, their support or concerns about the changes that are being made or not being made. So it sounds like these changes will come at the community level. There'll be opportunities for local communities to get involved. It really varies state by state, unfortunately. And oftentimes things like listening sessions aren't always basically different states are some are some are better about having public comment periods and things like that than others. So it sounds like the solutions will come at the federal level. This is about changing rules on that level. So how do we make these changes happen? On a federal level, having the EPA basically reopen and strengthen this RMP rule so that it it does include climate change and is more protective of fence line communities. I think that will be the biggest step that we can take at a federal level. Will they just decide to do this? Do they need pressure to do this? How do we get them to do it? I would say that there are a large number of community and worker-based organizations that are putting pressure on the EPA to, to take on this rule and, and strengthen it. Casey, any areas we didn't cover or final thoughts for our listeners? I guess I would just want to reiterate that the people who are most harmed by these events are those working at the facilities. 
first responders, as well as those living nearest the facilities, which we've already said, are disproportionately low income and communities of color. So at the end of the day, no one's health and well-being should be harmed as a result of where they live or where they work. And opening up and strengthening this rule will be a key step towards achieving environmental justice in this country. Well, Casey, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going back to October 5th, 1960, where at the U.S. Nuclear Command Center, NORAD, they received signals from an early warning radar in Greenland, indicating that a massive Soviet nuclear attack on the United States was underway, with a certainty of 99.9%. This radar was built in Greenland to provide an early glimpse of just such an attack and to allow time for the United States to launch a nuclear response. And U.S. land-based missiles were, and are, kept on hair-trigger alert, so they can be launched within a matter of minutes if such a warning comes. Even with this advance warning, the short flight time of incoming ballistic missiles, about 30 minutes, severely limits the time available for double-checking the warning data and deciding what to do. Confronted with credible warning, the president, who then, as now, had the sole authority to launch nuclear weapons, would have perhaps 10 minutes to decide whether to launch. Various sources give different accounts of what happened next on that day in 1960. In some, those in charge calmly checked the system and recognized the warning was false. In other accounts, there is considerably more tension and confusion, a, quote, sense of panic, until the situation is sorted out. In any case, the culprit on this day was found to be the rising moon, which, unexpectedly, reflected radar waves back to that radar in Greenland. The radar correctly assessed that it was seeing something big come over the horizon in the right place for a Soviet attack, and immediately began sending urgent warning reports to NORAD. But in this case, the something big wasn't a large number of nuclear warheads, but rather the moon. Gives new meaning to the phrase bad moon rising, doesn't it? Fortunately, this incident did not lead to disaster. And within a few weeks, scientists developed a reliable fix for this problem, and the moon was no longer a source of false alarms. But here's what's important. This incident resulted from a problem no one had considered when the system was being designed, And that wasn't discovered until the system was actually being used. And over the years, the warning system has sprung other surprises, just as you'd expect from a large, complex system. These include incidents like computer chip failures that gave false warnings of nuclear attacks, or the time a training tape simulating a missile launch from Cuba was briefly mistaken for the real deal. While the United States has now hopefully sorted out many bugs like this one, other concerns remain. There may be other surprise events that are rare enough not to have occurred yet, and that will baffle those at the warning center for longer than these previous close calls. Diagnosing the problem and recognizing it as a false alarm, typically amid confusion and lack of information, is not something you want to have to do in a race against the clock. And if an unexpected glitch like this happens at a time when tensions with Russia or China are high, 
that context could change the way the ambiguous warning data is viewed and could affect the decision of what to do. And maintaining our land-based missiles on high alert only increases that chance that mistakes, ones with massive global implications, could be made. Taking these missiles off hair trigger alert would immediately remove the risk of a mistaken or accidental launch, while preserving our ability to retaliate with missiles on submarines hidden at sea. And this is just one of several nuclear weapons policies that the Union of Concerned Scientists is advocating to change. With the right policies and safeguards, we can help protect against mistakes, accidents, and poor decision-making and we can work toward a world free from the nuclear threat. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science Podcast. Special thanks to Casey Coleman. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, stay safe, get vaccinated, and see you next time.